Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're concluding the book, The Taking of the Gribe by John Macefield, with this, the eighth part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. The Taking of the Gry, Part 8. You'll do it together, Tom said, and you'd do it alone. I shall miss Joe, Harry said. I won't get in the way, I said. But may I suggest something? We've got a steam launch here. Why not let the steam launch go down the channel ahead of us? No, no, sir, Harry said. We might use a boat ahead in a dock when going through a dock gate in a fog, but not in a job like this. We'll be all right, sir. What about a distance indicator on the rail here? I asked. No, no, sir. We're not used to it. Use is second nature. You'd better leave me to my own way. Well, we'll need a leadsman in the first two reaches, I said. There's Alf here, he said, indicating a shock-headed lad. We've kept Alf sober for you. He's a fair young tank when there's Vino going, aren't you, Alf? Alf grinned, but did not speak. Have you a stage and a breast rope rigged? All ready, sir. Oh, very well then, Tom said. We'll get to it, if you please. I'll go aboard and take the gry. You trip the anchor and come down to us. He blew a whistle to growl, hailed the launch and ordered her to haul up alongside. When they had drawn in, he ordered Grau and two of the seamen to come aboard the tug. You will be in charge here, he said to Grau, until she is safely alongside the tow. You, Charles, will stay on board and arrange with the mate. Very good, my captain, we said, saluting. He was just about to go down into the launch when he turned to me and said, If we fail, then beat it, moi pronto, in the tug, to the rendezvous written here. He handed me a leaf from a bridge order book. Very good, my captain, I said saluting again, and good luck, sir. Thanks, he said, poising himself upon the rail. Seeing his chance, he dropped down into the launch and bade her shove off. There was much mist floating about us at that instant, wreathing as it did about the men in the launch. It gave me an odd picture of heads detached from bodies. All in the boat looked like souls ridded of their flesh. They sheared away from us into the mist. At the same instant, our cable began to rattle in. Of course, I saw that Grau had to stay in the tug to give a naval air to her when she reached the Gry, but I found it hard to let Tom go aboard the Gry alone to play the game single-handed. However, it had to be. I was near Harry for a moment as the anchor came home. Fog's coming in quickly, I said. I won't be much, sir, he said. Nothing but a little mist. Why, I'd breathe a better fog than you'd get here. He moved away into the wheelhouse to take the wheel. A stout elderly tug hand with a smiling face sang out to him how the cable grew. In a couple of minutes we were underway, swinging round slowly towards the gry, through wafts of vapour which drifted in streaks against our masthead light and disappeared. Often wafts of mist seemed thick ahead until we reached them, but as we touched them, they died. Somebody aft, lighting the hawsers clear, was singing. The girls so wile me and so beguile me I don't know what to say, so as quickly as a comet I shall follow old Mahomet and have a different wife for every day. 
In five minutes, we had passed under the stern of the Gry and were coming up on her starboard side where the launch was now lying at her ladder foot. The launchies were still in their boat. Tom's pressed men were somewhere aboard the Gry. What had happened, I wondered. What luck had Tom's bluff had? Evidently, good luck so far because Tom himself hailed us from the Gry's forward well as we sidled slowly in. He called to Grau in Spanish to see the tug's horses bent to the lines he was throwing and then to transfer himself and the naval ratings on board the Gry. Grau answered, saluting. The Gry's lines were flung down and caught. Then Grau and the two seamen scrambled up the side and got aboard her. Senora Grau remained in the tug. I saw the seamen in the Gry. There were about a dozen of them with our recruits, dipping our horses clear and passing them forward, while we slowly went ahead of her to take position to tow. It is not a long job for a dozen trained smart seamen, well led, to get towing lines secured, but it seemed to me to take a very long time. They'll have to slip that cable of theirs, I said to myself, for they've no steam to get it by. As far as I could make out, they secured our horses forward and then passed somewhere out of hearing. I had gone into the tug's eyes, which was to be my station, expecting that we should start as soon as the lines were fast. However, the Grise cable was not slipped, and no signal came to us to shove ahead. I waited and waited, expecting the hail at each instant. What on earth was keeping them? Why didn't they slip and let us go? At any instant, the police or a patrol might come down upon us. At last, I could stand it no more, but laid aft to try to find out what was the matter. We were lying by, waiting for the signal. Some of the tug hands had come aft to learn the cause of the delay. We leaned together, staring through the mist at the gry. She loomed out at us there, under her towing lights. I could make out a figure, probably growl, on her forecastle, but did not hail, for we wanted as little shouting as possible. What's keeping them? I asked. One of the tug hands said, I suppose the cable shackles. Another said, well, they might be buying the slip, sir. I thought it much more likely that the crew had become suspicious about what was being done. They might be aft somewhere, morsing the shore, or putting Tom through the third degree. Yet that unconcerned figure on the forecastle must be Grau. I found Senora Grau beside me. She had been the calmest of us all that evening, and she was the calmest still. It is hard to have to wait like this, I said. Ah, she answered. I knew that there would be a wait, for the crew has to pack before going ashore. Why, of course, I said. Why didn't I think of that? Of course, all hands are below now, packing their bags. That was the cause of the delay. She was right, but I did not know it till later, and at the moment it gave me no comfort, for the thought at once followed. If they are below, together, packing their bags, they will talk and one or more of them is certain to become suspicious and tell something to the others. The only comfort was that in the gathering mist they could hardly morse to the shore or to the neighbouring ships. I tried not to show my anxiety, but the strain of waiting there, when the lines had been secured and the, the way the sea was clear, was very great. Close to me in that little tug was a warm, lit doorway, from which came the noise of engines and the smell of oil and hot metal. Two of the engine room staff, I know not their rank, were leaning there, getting a cool breath in the interval of waiting. They talked together about various subjects. One of them said that he was suffering from the last time he was England and was a little Qatar. The other said that he had never had a Qatar, 
but he'd heard tell of it, and did it make you swell? They talked then of diseases which did make you swell, or even burst, and then, as there were not many of those, they began to talk of the job in hand. The Qatar man said, This stealing a ship's piracy, ain't it, mate? The other replied, Not when a navy does it, then it's glory. Then the first said, I suppose it's the stone jug if they get us. Well, that's the ticket, the other answered. Me I owe you if you win, and me heartfelt sympathy if you come a mucker. Righto, said the first, so alleluia, brothers, step up front. The delay became less and less endurable. That part of the harbour was deserted, and nobody seemingly had heard us or suspected us. The way out to sea was still fairly clear. Why could we not snatch the heaven-sent instant and be gone? We could not count on much more clearness, because while I stood there biting my fingers, the big foghorn at the lighthouse at Nun's Point began to blare, which meant that real fog was beginning. A minute or two later, the tinkle of the fog bells began from the ships in the tiers. The irregular silvery ting-ting of two bells came from perhaps fifty ships. A big ship out at sea blew her siren, and some lesser ship replied. Near us, as it happened, it was not yet very thick. I went aft again, meaning to hail the gry and have my doubts resolved. I could no longer see the figure waiting on the forecastle there, nor even the gry, save as a sort of bulk looming out, but Grau hailed at that instant. Ahoy the tug there! Sir, I'm ready to slip. Will you shove ahead and hold her? Aye, aye, sir. Is your launch clear? The launch is just shoving off now. Well, let her get clear, sir, I shouted, and then trip your ladder. I heard the launch thrash water as she sheered away from the gry with all the naval ratings. I heard the creak of the tackle as Tom and Grau together tripped the ladder. Then, with a rattle and roar, followed by a shock and a splash, the gry's cable leaped over the bits, through the horse pipes, to the sea. Full ahead, Grau shouted. We had been moving very slightly forward for thirty seconds. Now, with a noise of snapping and snibbing, the hawsers tautened, squeezing the drops out. Our screw thrashed, seeming to take hold and then to drive us. The trembling in the slasher changed to the regular beat of an advance, and we were off. I went forward to stare into the mist ahead. When we had plucked the gry from her berth, we drew her clear of the outer tier and straightened her out for the entrance to Drake's channel. The fog was growing upon us, slowly, in waves and wafts, followed by intervals of clearness. The beacons on the seawall dead ahead were sometimes fuzzes of yellow, sometimes invisible. So often when a ship gets underway, the police boats dart down upon her. They are like flies that attack the animal that moves from shelter. I felt certain that our movement would cause their movement and bring them about us, but it did not. What struck me most at that instant was the beauty of the singing of a liberty party in some boat not now visible near the landing stairs. They had a couple of flutes with them, playing the evening hymn, to which the men sang. The flute music came like a blessing to us. It made the hymn one of the most lovely things I have heard. Slowly, we drew nearer to the beacons and entered plumb between them into Drake's channel where one could see nothing but swathe after white swathe rolling down upon the lights we cast. The fog closed in astern of us and shut us away from fear of police and patrol boats for that time. I counted the revolutions and reckoned our advance while I listened for our only guide, the East Rora. There's always a bit of luck in these things, Harry had said. 
we had had a bit of luck in getting into the channel right dead between the marks, with the luck hold at the bend, and at the next bend, and the bend beyond. You may have watched a ship's company in a tense situation and noticed how silent and intense they will be. I was there, in the eyes, on the port bow, staring forward. Alongside me on the starboard bow was the man called Hawkey, also staring forward. Behind me, ready with his lead on the stage, was Alf. Further aft in the lighted wheel box was Harry, steering. What if his steering lights gave out? I knew that the lead would help me in one part of that reach, about 500 yards from the entrance. I waited for that, reckoning our distance run. 300 yards, two cables, 450 yards. Cast here, I said to Alf. Just at that point, right in the centre of the channel, there is a patch of white sand with shells and small broken coral on it at a depth of just over five fathoms. It is in the midst of the narrowest part of the wrist and measures about 50 yards long by 30 broad. Alf cast his lead, called a half-five, hauled in, looked at the arming and reported shell on that, brushed away the scraps from his grease, cast again, called quarter-less six, shell on that, and hauled in for a third cast. But at the third cast we were over the patch of sand. He brought up a dinted arming at quarter-six. I judged that we were 600 yards on our way to the East Rora, with a cable still to go before the first right-angled turn. The East Rora cried out aloud ahead, within a cable from us. 150 yards, I reckoned, in that subtraction sum always going on in my head. I had arranged with Harry that I was to leave the changing of course to him. He would do all that by his own methods and mother wit, but that I was to yell like fun if I sighted any boat fishing or any ship at anchor, or if I found the tug suddenly on the top of any of her marks. I ticked off the yards in my head, revolution by revolution, till the suspense was almost unbearable. Then suddenly, far away, behind me as it seemed, on my starboard quarter I heard a distant bellboy give a melancholy clang, and I knew that it was the bellboy on the widow's crook, and marvelled how it could be on my quarter. My heart stood still at that sound, from fear that he had held on too far. Then I realised that it was on its right bearing, or was it right? No, I thought, it isn't right, we're fifty yards out too far, to the east. Then in the darkness of the fog ahead, quite close to us, it seemed, the East Rora uttered his bellow with a spatter and splash of collapsing water following the roar. There was no gleam to be seen. The fog was thick now, but I judged that it was the instant, and Harry judged so too. The wheel chains rattled. Shouts passed aft to the gry till Grau repeated them. The tug heeled a little to starboard and trembled and checked as she came round. The hawsers gridded as they swung. There was sort of hesitation in our movements, as though the Gry were not sure that she would not take a shear and pile herself up. But she came round and steadied to the new course with the East Rora gurgling astern and both bellboys distinctly audible, almost on the same bearing. That's her first fence, I said to Hawkey. She's over that. Now for the rest. We crept on as before, with my heart in my boots, for this second reach was made narrow by the sandbank, and somehow I felt that Harry had held on too long and had not allowed for the sand. We had been plumb on our course for entering the first reach. How right we were for this one, I could not tell, but my instinct told me that we were not right. It was a matter for our fortune and the skill of Harry. In a narrow sleeve like that, with rock on both sides and a shelf of sand in the middle, a very tiny error in the course will pile you up. All our time in that middle reach, it was as thick as fog could be. 
I could not see Hawkey beside me, nor even a blur of light in the wheelhouse. We were crawling into a blind darkness, with no guide save the bellboys, one of which was now drawing near. Get a cast now, I said to Alf. He got a couple of casts with fair depth and with sand on the arming, which showed that we were near the danger. We're too much to port, I said to myself. We're too far over to port. Harry's hung on to her too long. I was holding my breath and biting my nails, and then, just at the instant that I feared, there came from astern the feeling of a dead weight suddenly applied, checking our way, and that sensation, half sound, half sense of squeezing and sticking. The gry was on the sandbank and holding us. There was no noise at all. Harry rang his telegraph for full speed ahead. Our engines doubled and the screws thrashed. After an instant's pause, the gry shifted forward and slithered off it after us, checking again for an instant, then moving on. We were past it. We were nearly stuck there, I said to Hawkey. I knew we were too far to port. Uh, she's over it, sir, Hawkey said. That was the danger which I had feared most. We had hit it a glancing blow and had scraped past it, luckily, instead of sticking. The scare of the blow took away what little peace of mind I had left. I began to think, that isn't what Tollock and Harry reckoned as a danger. The real danger to them was that running jobble in the boneyard, and what they count dangerous is probably deadly. I began to see now why a jobble would be dangerous. In that blindness of the middle reach and the stillness of the fog, there was always, at every point, the wash and splash of water crawling and slipping over reefs. Presently, I began to hear the voice of a more turbulent water, which grew much louder as we neared it. I knew that this voice was the jobble. I knew from its tone of voice that it was running much harder than it had run in the afternoon, and the threat of its leaping gaggle told me that it would take us and the tow where it chose, and that we should have no say in the matter. However, Harry knew all that better than I did. Anyhow, there should be no fishers fishing there, nor any ship anchored. I might as well leave my post. The water of this race was soon roaring athwart our hawse just ahead. The bellboy, which had been on our bow, now drew away to our beam. Then our bows lifted and bowed down with a plowter. The quiet path of the slasher suddenly changed to a dance upon a mill race which shook her to her bearings. As she lifted and splashed well into it, Harry let her have it. We came round like a weathercock. There followed a sickening instant, no, half a minute, while the gry felt the change, tried not to conform to it, and then found the jobble too much for her and swung round after us. She was round. But in the dance of that current, who could tell where we should finish? The ship was no longer in control. Sir, Hawkey said, will you look at that? Did you ever see the beat of that? That was a lifting of all fog from the path before us, and the display of the third reach straining dark in the jobble, but in all other parts lighted by phosphorescence. Wherever the water was still, each rock burned in a glow as though myriads of glowworms were at pasture on them. On the sides of the channel, the effect was something like lighted rime frost. Something luminous was in the spout of the West Rora as she shot aloft, dead ahead, giving us our course. There's sinner's luck, I said, just at the instant we needed it most. I remembered that in the earlier flood that afternoon, the jobble had ceased to be a race about midway down the boneyard. I prayed that that might be so at that state of the tide, for if not, we should smash. We went down that reach in double-quick time under the shove of the current, 
and I suppose at each second of the run we risked losing our toe, for we had no real hold of her. She seemed inclined to take charge and get across the stream. She very nearly did, but just didn't until the end of the rush when the jobble checked against the incoming flood and gave us a chance to straighten her. We regained control and made that last turn round a bend in a clear moment when we got good bearings of the lights that would guide us to open water. Never was such luck. The danger now was that a patrol would come to us from the naval station on Drake's Island, but our luck held. The fog came down in earnest, shutting out everything, even the hand held at an arm's length from the eyes. We went full speed ahead till we knew what the tug's movements told us that we were at sea. Then we altered course for the rendezvous arranged. Presently, even the noise of the great hooter on Nun's Point could no longer be heard. We were far out at sea. Just before the dawn, when there was colour in the sky and light to see, the fog thinned away, with promise of a clear morning. Julius Caesar Tollock came out from his cabin to us. He walked like a body without a soul. I have never seen a man so broken. Harry handed over the wheel to Hawkey so that he might speak to his captain. How is it, Joe? he asked. I let you in for all the trouble last night, Tollock answered, but I see you brought her out. Ah, oh, it was nothing, Harry said. The fog was nothing and the channel isn't like some. There's good deep water on it. I've been thinking, Tollock said, that a man with rum in his veins ought never to have children. My father, who was a boatswain's mate in Admiral Hornby's flying squad, was a drinker, never sober ashore. And I'm a drinker too. If you would look at a bottle of rum or brandy, you would think it was coloured water, for it must have been rain water once. But it isn't water. It's a poison that runs in men and in their children. What is the thing children ought to have beyond all others? Not food or clothes or shelter or school, but good clean parents who've got no poison in them. My father had the poison of rum in him, and so have I, and so has my son, the rooter, who went into the motor cars, and now they've locked up my son for dangerous driving when drunk. Yet it is me they should have locked up, me and my father before me. He moved away to the side and stared at the sunrise. He feels it, Joe, Harry said, his son that he's so proud of, the rooter as he calls him. He's a hurtler when he draws his pay, a fair young rip. Tollick came back to us. I see what it is, he said. Very few people have the right to have children, and those who take the right ought to suffer. My married life began in rum. If I'd not had that other rum hot, I would never have asked my Jane, and all this wouldn't have been. Joe, Joe, Harry said soothingly. She would have caught you without the rum hot. Feelings get hot without any rum to help them, and no man dodges his fate. No, no, Tollock said. It's like casting from moulds. Children ought only to be cast from good moulds, and I'm a bad mould that ought to be in the dustbin. Still, he said, rousing, we'll drop down to the toe now. This uh, young gentleman and lady would like to get aboard her to their friends, and we'll drop the river hawser and give her a long sea line. He brought the tug alongside so that Senora Grau and I could scramble up the ladder to her. I relieved Tom at the wheel while the tug went ahead again, giving us a full scope. Presently the sun came over the horizon and the thinning mist grew thinner. The grouse went below to forage for breakfast for us. We were well clear of the land, of course, and it lay in mist astern, with the peaks above it like faint pink clouds. My thought was that by this time the Santa Barbara destroyers would be quartering the sea for us, and that as the mist thinned we should be sighted. 
Tom, I said. Tell me how you managed last night. What happened when you came aboard? Tom was shaken and tired and white, but he grinned at the question. They leaped out of their skins at the sight of all this gold lace, he said. The lieutenant was ashore with his gig's crew and the leading seaman in charge was drunk. I gave him a piece of my mind about it. Then I told him to trim the binnacle lamps, hoist the towing lights, get the horses aboard and have all clear forward for slipping. He was so afraid of being disrated that he turned to and made the others turn to. They were a very smart lot. I thought that they might suspect when I sent them to pack their bags, but no, they went away in the launch like lambs. Your plan worked like a charm, Charles, from the very first. The two grouts appeared with a tray of hot coffee, brown bread, honey and passion fruit. Senora Grau, always tidy, was now smart. Grau looked as though he had been in the chain locker. His staff officer's uniform was ruined. We were still at breakfast there on the bridge when Tom suddenly said, There's the flotilla, pointing to four little smudges ahead. In a few minutes, these neared us. They were the escort of destroyers from El Puno, sent to bring us in. They brought us to El Puno, and there they shipped me back to Santa Barbara by a night-flying aeroplane over the frontier and a fast car into the city. I was back in the club 54 hours after leaving Duke of Rivas Street. No one suspected my share in the lifting of the Gry. I asked no questions about her, but by listening I found out, in time, that she had not been missed for 15 hours after we had started. Our naval details had gone to barracks as ordered. The lieutenant, who had gone to the levee, slept at his club and did not attempt to return on board until the afternoon. On looking for a ship, one of his crew told him that she had been taken over by a superior officer during the night. He would have been content with this answer had not all his clothes been in the gry, and in his efforts to find the ship, he roused suspicions in some breasts that all was not well. However, by this time, the Admiralty Harbour officer had gone home into the country, and his office was closed until the morning. Just as we drew into a wharf at El Puno, the Santa Barbara Admiralty learned that the Gry had disappeared. It was then too late in the day to do much except fuss and be furious. The Poiré guns on board the Gry ended the war in Santa Ana by breaking the President's army at the salt pans outside the city. The President resigned and fled the country, and Tom's party triumphed. The slasher and her crew are at El Puno still as parts of the Santano Navy. However, that is outside my story. I only wish to tell you about the taking of the Gry. Well, that's the end of John Macefield's The Taking of the Gry. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you've got something from this or any of the other books that we've read here on the Mariner's Library, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can help the production of these recordings. Well, the next episode will be the start of a new book. I look forward to that. But until then, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope you stay safe and sound. Cheers. Cheers.